0: book two chapter twenty three of on the ends of good and evil by cicero translated by harris rackham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards but let us grant your position the actual word pleasure has an undignified sound and perhaps we do not understand its significance you are always repeating that we do not understand what you mean by pleasure, as though it were a difficult or recondite notion. We understand you when you talk of indivisible atoms and cosmic interspaces, things that don't exist and never can exist. Then is our intelligence incapable of grasping the meaning of pleasure a feeling known to every sparrow? What if I force you to admit that I do know not only what pleasure really is, it is an agreeable activity of the sense but also what do you mean by it for at one moment you mean by it the feeling that i have just defined and this you entitle kinetic pleasure as producing a definite change of feeling but at another moment you say it is quite a different feeling which is the acme and climax of pleasure but yet consists merely in the complete absence of pain this you call static pleasure well grant that pleasure is the latter sort of feeling profess in any public assembly that the motive of all your actions is the desire to avoid pain if you feel that this too does not sound sufficiently dignified and respectable say that you intend both in your present office and all your life long to act solely for the sake of your own advantage to do nothing but what will pay nothing in short that is not for your own interest Imagine the uproar among the audience. What would become of your chances of the consulship, which, as it is, seems to be a certainty for you in the near future? Will you then adopt a rule of life which you can appeal to in private and among friends, but which you dare not openly profess or parade in public? Ah, but it is the vocabulary of the peripatetics and the Stoics that is always on your lips in the law courts and the Senate duty, fair dealing, moral worth, fidelity, uprightness, honour, the dignity of office, the dignity of the Roman people. Risk all for the state. Die for your country. When you talk in this style, we simpletons stand gaping in admiration. And you no doubt laugh in your sleeve, for in that glorious array of high-sounding words pleasure finds no place not only what your school calls kinetic pleasure which is what every one polished or rustic every one i say who can speak latin means by pleasure but not even this static pleasure which no one but you epicureans would call pleasure at all chapter twenty four well then are you sure you have any right to employ our words with meanings of your own if you assumed an unnatural expression or demeanour in order to look more important, that would be insincere. Are you then to affect an artificial language, and say what you do not think? Or are you to change your opinions like your clothes, and have one set for indoor wear, and another when you walk abroad? Outside, all show and pretense, but your genuine self concealed within. Reflect, I beg of you, is this honest? In my view, those opinions are true, which are honourable, praiseworthy and noble which can be openly avowed in the senate and the popular assembly and in every company and gathering so that one need not be ashamed to say what one is not ashamed to think again how will friendship be possible how can one man be another man's friend if he does not love him in and for himself what is the meaning of to love from which our word for friendship is derived except to wish some one to receive the greatest possible benefits even though one gleans no advantage therefrom oneself it pays me you say to be a disinterested friend no perhaps it pays you to seem so be so you cannot unless you really are but how can you be a disinterested friend unless you feel genuine affection yet affection does not commonly result from any calculation of expediency It is a spontaneous growth. It springs up of itself. But you will say, I am guided by expediency. Then your friendship will last just so long as it is attended by expediency. If expediency creates the feeling, it will also destroy it. But what, pray, will you do if, as often happens, expediency parts company with friendship? Will you throw your friend over? What sort of friendship is that? Will you keep him? how does that square with your principles you remember your pronouncement that friendship is desirable for the sake of expediency i might become unpopular if i left a friend in the lurch well in the first place why is such conduct unpopular unless because it is base and if you refrain from deserting a friend because to do so will have inconvenient consequences still you will long for his death to release you from an unprofitable tie what if he not only brings you no advantage but causes you to suffer loss of property to undergo toil and trouble to risk your life will you not even then take interest into account and reflect that each man is born for himself and for his own pleasure will you go bail with your life to a tyrant on behalf of a friend as the famous pythagorean did to the sicilian despot or being pylades will you say you are Orestes, so as to die in your friend's stead? Or supposing you were Orestes, would you say Pylades was lying, and reveal your identity? And, if they would not believe you, would you entreat that you both might die together? CHAPTER twenty-five. Yes, Torquatus, you personally would do all these things, for I do not believe there is any high or noble action which fear of pain or death could induce you to forego but the question is not what conduct is consistent with your character, but what is consistent with your tenets. The system you uphold, the principles you have studied and accept, undermine the very foundations of friendship. However much Epicurus may, as he does, praise friendship up to the skies. But, you tell me, Epicurus himself had many friends. Who, pray, denies that Epicurus was a good man, and a kind and humane man? In these discussions it is his intellect and not his character that is in question. Let us leave to the frivolous Greeks the wrong-headed habit of attacking and abusing the persons whose views of truth they do not share. Epicurus may have been a kind and faithful friend, but if what I say is true, for I do not dogmatize, he was not a very acute thinker. But he won many disciples. Yes, and perhaps he deserved to do so, but still the witness of the crowd does not carry much weight. For, as in every art or study or science of any kind, so, in right conduct itself, supreme excellence is extremely rare. And to my mind the fact that Epicurus himself was a good man, and that many Epicureans both have been, and to-day are loyal to their friends, consistent and high principled throughout their lives, ruling their conduct by duty and not by pleasure, All this does but enforce the value of moral goodness and diminish that of pleasure. The fact is that some persons' lives and behaviour refute the principles they profess. Most men's words are thought to be better than their deeds. These people's deeds, on the contrary, seem to me better than their words. Chapter 26. But this, I admit, is a digression. Let us return to what you said about friendship. In one of your remarks I seem to recognize a saying of Epicurus himself, that friendship cannot be divorced from pleasure, and that it deserves to be cultivated for the reason that without it we cannot live secure and free from alarm, and therefore cannot live agreeably. Enough has been said in answer to this already. You quoted another and a more humane dictum of the more modern Epicureans, which, so far as I know, was never uttered by the Master himself this was to the effect that although at the outset we desire a man's friendship for utilitarian reasons yet when intimacy has grown up we love our friend for his own sake even if all prospect of pleasure be left out of sight it is possible to take exception to this position on several grounds still i welcome their concession as it is sufficient for my case and not sufficient for theirs for it amounts to saying that moral action is occasionally possible action prompted by no anticipation or desire of pleasure you further alleged that other thinkers speak of wise men as making a sort of mutual compact to entertain the same sentiments towards their friends as they feel towards themselves this you said was possible and in fact had often occurred and it was highly conducive to the attainment of pleasure if men have succeeded in making this compact Let them make a further compact to love fair dealing, self-control, and all the virtues for their own sakes and without reward. If, on the other hand, we are to cultivate friendships for their results, for profit and utility, if there is to be no affection to render friendship in and for itself intrinsically and spontaneously desirable, can we doubt that we shall value land and house property more than friends? It is no good your once again repeating Epicurus's admirable remarks in praise of friendship. I am not asking what Epicurus actually says, but what he can say consistently while holding the theory he professes. Friendship is originally sought after from motives of utility. Well, but surely you don't reckon Triarius here a more valuable asset than the granaries at Puteoli would be if they belonged to you cite all the stock epicurean maxims friends are a protection you can protect yourself the laws will protect you ordinary friendships offer protection enough soon you will be too powerful to be despised moreover you will easily avoid hatred and envy epicurus gives rules for doing so and even otherwise with so large an income to give away you can dispense with the romantic sort of friendship that we have in mind You will have plenty of well-wishers to defend you quite effectively but a confidant to share your grave thoughts or gay as the saying is all your secrets and private affairs your best confidant is yourself you may also confide in a friend of the average type but granting that friendship has the conveniences you mention what are they compared with the advantages of such vast wealth you see then that although if you measure friendship by the test of its own charm it is unsurpassed in value by the standard of profit the most affectionate intimacy is outweighed by the rents of a valuable estate so you must love me myself not my possessions if we are to be genuine friends chapter twenty seven but we dwell too long upon the obvious for when it has been conclusively proved that if pleasure is the sole standard There is no room left either for virtue or friendship there is no great need to say anything further still i do not want you to think i have failed to answer any of your points so i will now say a few words more in reply to the remainder of your discourse the end and aim of every system of philosophy is the attainment of happiness and desire for happiness is the sole motive that has led men to engage in this study but different thinkers make happiness consist in different things according to your school it consists in pleasure and conversely misery consists solely in pain let us then begin by examining what sort of thing happiness as you conceive it is you will grant i suppose that if there is such a thing as happiness it is bound to be attainable in its entirety by the wise man for if happiness once won can be lost Happy life is impossible. Since who can feel confident of permanently and securely retaining a possession that is perishable and precarious? Yet, one who is not sure of the permanence of his goods must inevitably fear that a time may come when he may lose them and so be miserable. But no one can be happy who fears utter ruin. Therefore, no one can be happy at all. For we usually speak of a life as a happy one not in reference to a part of it but to the whole of a lifetime indeed a life means a finished and complete life nor is it possible to be at one time happy and at another miserable since he who thinks that he may be miserable will not be happy for when happiness has once been achieved it is as permanent as wisdom itself which is the efficient cause of happiness it does not wait for the end of our mortal term as croesus in herodotus's history was warned by solon to do it may be rejoined that epicurus as you yourself were saying denies that long duration can add anything to happiness he says that as much pleasure is enjoyed in a brief span of time as if pleasure were everlasting in saying this he is grossly inconsistent he places the chief good in pleasure and yet he says that no greater pleasure would result from a lifetime of endless duration than from a limited and moderate period if a person finds the sole good in virtue it is open to him to say that the happy life is consummated by the consummation of virtue for his position is that the chief good is not increased by lapse of time but if one thinks that happiness is produced by pleasure how can he consistently deny that pleasure is increased by duration if it is not, pain is not either. Or if pain is worse, the longer it lasts, is not pleasure rendered more desirable by continuance? Epicurus always speaks of the deity as happy and everlasting. But on what ground? Take away his everlasting life, and Joe is no happier than Epicurus. Each of them enjoys the chief good, that is to say, pleasure. Ah, but, you say, Epicurus is liable to pain as well. Yes, but he thinks nothing of pain, for he tells us that if he were being burnt to death he would exclaim, How delightful this is! wherein, then, is he inferior to God, except that God lives forever. But what good has everlasting life to offer beside supreme and never-ending pleasure? What then is the use of your high-flown language, if it be not consistent? Physical pleasure, and i will add if you like mental pleasure so long as this as you hold is understood to have its source in the body constitutes happiness well who can guarantee this pleasure for the wise man in perpetuity for the things that produce pleasure are not in the wise man's control since happiness does not consist in wisdom itself but in the means to pleasure which wisdom can procure but all the apparatus of pleasure is external and what is external must depend on chance consequently happiness becomes the slave of fortune yet epicurus says that fortune interferes with the wise man but little chapter twenty eight come you will say these are trivial objections the wise man is endowed with nature's own riches and these as epicurus has shown are easy of attainment this is excellently said and i do not combat it but epicurus's own statements are at war with each other he tells us that the simplest fare that is the meanest sorts of food and drink afford no less pleasure than a banquet of the rarest delicacies for my part if he said that it made no difference to happiness what sort of food he ate i should agree and what is more i should applaud for he would be telling the truth I will listen to Socrates, who holds pleasure of no account, when he says that the best sauce for food is hunger, and the best flavoring for drink, thirst. But I will not listen to one who makes pleasure the sole standard, when, while living like Galonius, he talks like Piso the thrifty. I refuse to believe in his sincerity. He said that natural wealth is easily won, because nature is satisfied with little. Undoubtedly, if only you Epicureans did not value pleasure so highly. As much pleasure, he says, is derived from the cheapest things as from the most costly. Dear me, his palate must be as dull as his wits. Persons who despise pleasure in itself are at liberty to say that they value a sturgeon no higher than a sprat. But a man whose chief good consists in pleasure is bound to judge everything by sensation, not by reason and to call those things the best which are the pleasantest however let us grant his point let him get the highest pleasures cheap or for all i care for nothing if he can allow that there is as much pleasure to be found in the cress salad which according to xenophon formed the staple diet of the persians as in the syracusan banquets which plato takes to task so severely Grant, I say, that pleasure is as easy to get as your school makes out. But what are we to say of pain? Pain can inflict such tortures as to render happiness absolutely impossible. That is, if it be true that pain is the chief evil. Metrodorus himself, who was almost a second Epicurus, describes happiness, I give almost his actual words, as sound health and an assurance of its continuance can any one have an assurance of what his health will be? I don't say a year hence, but this evening. It follows that we can never be free from the apprehension of pain, which is the chief evil, even when it is absent, for at any moment it may be upon us. How, then, can life be happy when haunted by fear of the greatest evil? Ah, but, he rejoins, Epicurus teaches a method for disregarding pain. To begin with, the mere idea of disregarding that which is the greatest of evils is absurd. But what is this method, pray? The severest pain, says he, is brief. First of all, what do you mean by brief? And secondly, what do you mean by the severest pain? Why cannot the most intense pain last for several days? You may find it last for months, unless indeed you mean a seizure that instantaneously kills you, but no one is afraid of such a pain as that. I want you rather to alleviate such agony as I have seen afflicting my excellent and amiable friend, Gnaeus Octavius, son of Marcus, and that not once only, or for a short time, but repeatedly, and for very long periods. Great heavens, what torments he used to suffer! All his joints felt as if on fire, and yet one did not think of him as miserable, because such pain was not the greatest evil only as afflicted miserable he would have been if he had lived a life of profligacy and vice surrounded by every pleasure chapter twenty nine as for your maxim that severe pain is short and prolonged pain light i cannot make out what it may mean for i see pains that are at once severe and considerably prolonged and the truer way to endure them is that other method which you who do not love moral worth for its own sake are not able to employ courage has its precepts and its rules rules of constraining force that forbid a man to show womanish weakness in pain hence it must be considered a disgrace i do not say to feel pain that is sometimes inevitable but that rock of lemnos to outrage with the cries of a Philoctetes, till the dumb stones utter a voice of weeping, echoing his wails and plaints, his sighs and groanings. Let Epicurus soothe with his spells, if he can, the man whose veins and vitals from the viper's fang envenomed throb with pangs of anguish dire. Thus Epicurus, Philoctetes, if pain is severe, it is short. Oh, but he has been languishing in his cave these ten years past. If it is long, it is light, for it grants intervals of respite. In the first place, these are few and far between, and secondly, what is the good of a respite embittered by recent pain still fresh in memory, and tormented by fear of pain impending in the future? Let him die, says Epicurus. Perhaps that were the best course, but what becomes of the maxim about a constant preponderance of pleasure if that be true are you not guilty of a crime in advising him to end his life well then let us rather tell him that it is base and unmanly to be enfeebled crushed and overpowered by pain as for the formula of your sect short if it's strong light if it's long it is a tag for copy-books virtue magnanimity endurance Courage, it is these that have balm to assuage pain. Chapter 30. But I must not digress too far. Let me repeat the dying words of Epicurus, to prove to you the discrepancy between his practice and his principles. Epicurus, to Hermarchus, greeting, I write these words, he says, on the happiest and the last day of my life. I am suffering from diseases of the bladder and intestines which are of the utmost possible severity unhappy creature if pain is the chief evil that is the only thing to be said but let us hear his own words yet all my sufferings he continues are counterbalanced by the joy which i derive from remembering my theories and discoveries i charge you by the devotion which from your youth up you have displayed towards myself and towards philosophy to protect the children of Metrodorus. When I read this, I rank the death scene of Epicurus on a level with those of Epaminondas and of Leonidas. Epaminondas had defeated the Lacedaemonians at Mantinea, and perceived himself to be mortally wounded. As soon as he regained consciousness, he inquired if his shield were safe. His weeping followers told him that it was he asked were the enemy routed satisfied on this point also he bade them pluck out the spear that pierced his side a rush of blood followed and so in the hour of joy and victory he died leonidas king of the lacedaemonians had to choose between dishonourable flight and a glorious death with the three hundred warriors that he had brought from sparta he confronted the foe at thermopylae It is glorious to fall when leading an army, but philosophers mostly die in their beds. Still, the manner of their death makes a difference. Epicurus counts himself happy in his last moments. All honour to him. My joy, he writes, counterbalances the severest pain. There, Epicurus, it is true, I hear the voice of a philosopher, but you forget what you logically ought to say. In the first place, If the thing in the recollection of which you profess to find pleasure i mean your writings and your theories are true you cannot really be feeling pleasure all feelings referable to the body are over for you yet you have always maintained that no one feels either pleasure or pain except on account of the body he says i take pleasure in my past feelings what past feelings if you mean bodily feelings i notice that it is not the memory of bodily delights, but your philosophical theories that counterbalance for you your present pains. If mental feelings, your doctrine, that there is no delight of the mind, not ultimately referable to the body, is an error. And secondly, why do you provide for the children of Metrodorus? What standard of bodily pleasure are you following in this signal act? For, so I esteem it, of loyalty and duty. CHAPTER Thirty One yes torquatus you people may turn and twist as you like but you will not find a line in this famous letter of epicurus that is not inconsistent and incompatible with his teachings hence he is his own refutation his writings are disproved by the uprightness of his character that provision for the care of the children that loyalty to friendship and affection that observance of these solemn duties with his latest breath, prove that there was innate in the man a disinterested uprightness not evoked by pleasure, nor elicited by prizes and rewards. Seeing so strong a sense of duty in a dying man, what clearer evidence do we want that morality and rectitude are desirable for their own sakes? But while I think that the letter I have just translated almost word for word is most admirable, although entirely inconsistent with the general tenor of his philosophy, yet I consider his will to be quite out of harmony not only with the dignity of a philosopher, but also with his own pronouncement. For he repeatedly argued at length, and also stated briefly and plainly in the book I have just mentioned, that death does not affect us at all, for a thing that has experienced dissolution must be devoid of sensation and that which is devoid of sensation cannot affect us in any degree whatsoever. The maxim, such as it is, might have been better and more neatly put, for the phrase What has experienced dissolution must be devoid of sensation, does not make clear what it is that has experienced dissolution. However, in spite of this I understand the meaning intended. What I want to know is this. If all sensation is annihilated by dissolution, that is by death and if nothing whatever that can affect us remains why is it that he makes such precise and careful provision and stipulation that his heirs Amunicus and timocrates shall after consultation with Hermarchus, assign a sufficient sum to celebrate his birthday every year in the month of gamalion and also on the twentieth day of every month shall assign a sum for a banquet to his fellow-students in philosophy in order to keep alive the memory of himself and of Metrodorus, that these are the words of as amiable and kindly a man as you like i cannot deny but what business has a philosopher and especially a natural philosopher which epicurus claims to be to think that any day can be anybody's birthday why can the identical day that has once occurred recur again and again assuredly it is impossible or can a similar day recur this too is impossible except after an interval of many thousands of years when all the heavenly bodies simultaneously achieve their return to the point from which they started it follows that there is no such thing as anybody's birthday all the same people do keep birthdays much obliged i am sure for the information but even granting birthdays is a person's birthday to be observed when he is dead and to provide for this by will is this appropriate for a man who told us in oracular tones that nothing can affect us after death such a provision ill became one whose intellect had roamed over unnumbered worlds and realms of infinite space unbounded and unending did democritus do anything of the kind to omit others i cite the case of the philosopher who was epicurus's only master and if a special day was to be kept did he do well to take the day on which he was born and not rather that on which he became a wise man you will object that he could not have become a wise man if he had not first of all been born you might equally well say if his grandmother had not been born either The entire notion of wishing one's name and memory to be celebrated by a banquet after one's death is alien to a man of learning. I won't refer to your mode of keeping these anniversaries, or to the ridicule you bring upon yourselves from persons with a sense of humour. We do not want to quarrel. I only remark that it was more your business to keep Epicurus's birthday than his business to provide by will for its celebration. CHAPTER thirty-two, But... To return to our subject, for we were discussing the question of pain, when we digressed to the letter of Epicurus, the whole matter may now be put in the following syllogism. A man undergoing the supreme evil is not for the time being happy. But the wise man is always happy, and sometimes undergoes pain. Therefore pain is not the supreme evil. And again, what is the sense of the maxim? that the wise man will not let past blessings fade from memory, and that it is a duty to forget past misfortunes. To begin with, have we the power to choose what we shall remember. Themistocles, at all events, when Simonides, or some one, offered to teach him the art of memory, replied that he would prefer the art of forgetting. For I remember, said he, even things I do not wish to remember, but I cannot forget things I wish to forget epicurus was a very able man but still the fact of the matter is that a philosopher who forbids us to remember lays too heavy a charge upon us why you are as great a martinet as your ancestor manlius or greater if you order me to do what is beyond my power what if the memory of past evils be actually pleasant proving certain proverbs truer than the tenets of your school there is a popular saying to the effect that toil is pleasant when tis over and euripides well writes i will attempt a verse translation the greek line is known to you all sweet is the memory of sorrows past but let us return to the question of past blessings if your school meant by these the sort of successes that gaius marius could fall back on enabling him when a penniless exile up to his chin in a swamp lighten his sufferings by recollecting his former victories i would listen to you and would unreservedly assent indeed it would be impossible for the happiness of the wise man to attain its final and ultimate perfection if all his previous wise designs and achievements were to be erased from his memory but with you it is the recollection of pleasures enjoyed that gives happiness and those must be bodily pleasures for if it be any others it ceases to be true that mental pleasures all arise from the connection of the mind with the body yet if bodily pleasure even when past can give delight i do not see why aristotle should be so contemptuous of the epitaph of sardanapalus the famous syrian monarch boasts that he has taken with him all the sensual pleasures that he has enjoyed how asks aristotle could a dead man continue to experience a feeling which even while alive he could only be conscious of so long as he was actually enjoying it so that bodily pleasures are transient each in turn evaporates leaving cause for regrets more often than for recollection accordingly africanus must be counted happier than sardanapalus when he addresses his country with the words cease rome thy foes and the glorious conclusion my toils have won the battlements secure his past toils are what he delights in whereas you bid us dwell upon our past pleasures he recalls experiences that never had any connection with bodily enjoyment but you never rise above the body chapter thirty three again how can you possibly defend the dictum of your school that all mental pleasures and pains alike are based on pleasures and pains of the body do you torquatus for i bethink me who it is i am addressing do you personally never experience delight in something for its own sake i pass over moral worth and goodness and the intrinsic beauty of the virtues of which we spoke before i will suggest less serious matters reading or writing a poem or a speech study of history or geography statues pictures beautiful scenery sport hunting lucullus's country house i won't mention your own for that would give you a loophole of escape you would say it is a source of bodily enjoyment but take the things i have mentioned do you connect them with bodily sensation is there nothing which of itself affords you delight persist in tracing back the pleasures I have instanced to the body, and you show yourself impervious to argument, recant, and you abandon Epicurus's conception of pleasure altogether. As for your contention that mental pleasures and pains are greater than bodily, because the mind apprehends all three periods of time, whereas the body perceives only present sensations, surely It is absurd to say that a man who rejoices in sympathy with my pleasure feels more joy than I feel myself. Pleasure of the mind arises out of sympathy with that of the body, and pleasure of the mind is greater than that of the body. Thus it comes about that one who offers congratulations feels more delight than the person congratulated. But when you try to prove the wise man happy, on the ground, that he enjoys the greatest mental pleasures, and that these are infinitely greater than bodily pleasures you do not see the difficulty that meets you for it follows that the mental pains which he experiences will also be infinitely greater than the bodily ones hence he whom you maintain to be always happy would inevitably be sometimes miserable nor in fact will you ever prove him to be invariably happy as long as you make pleasure and pain the sole standard therefore we are bound torquatus to find some other chief good for man let us leave pleasure to the lower animals to whose evidence on this question of the chief good your school is fond of appealing but what if even animals are prompted by their several natures to do many actions conclusively proving that they have some other end in view than pleasure some of them show kindness even at the cost of trouble as for instance in giving birth to and rearing their offspring some delight in running and roaming about others are gregarious and create something resembling a social polity in a certain class of birds we see some traces of affection for human beings recognition recollection and in many we even notice regret for a lost friend if animals therefore possess some semblance of the human virtues unconnected with pleasure are men themselves to display no virtue except as a means to pleasure and shall we say that man who so far surpasses all other living creatures has been gifted by nature with no exceptional endowment chapter thirty four as a matter of fact if pleasure be all in all the lower animals are far and away superior to ourselves the earth herself without labor of theirs lavishes on them food from her stores in great variety and abundance whereas we with the most laborious efforts can scarcely if at all supply our needs yet i cannot think that the chief good can possibly be the same for a brute beast and for a man what is the use of all our vast machinery of culture of the great company of liberal studies of the goodly fellowship of the virtues if all these things are sought after solely for the sake of pleasure suppose when xerxes led forth his huge fleets and armies of horse and foot bridged the hellespont cut through athos marched over sea and sailed over land suppose on his reaching greece with his great armada some one asked him the reason for all this enormous apparatus of warfare and he were to reply that he had wanted to procure some honey from hymatis. Surely he would be thought to have had no adequate motive for so vast an undertaking. So with our wise man equipped and adorned with all the noblest accomplishments and virtues, not like Xerxes traversing the seas on foot and the mountains on shipboard, but mentally embracing sky and earth and sea in their entirety, to say that this man's aim is pleasure is to say that all his high endeavour is for the sake of a little honey no torquatus believe me we are born for loftier and more splendid purposes nor is this evidenced by the mental faculties alone including as they do a memory for countless facts in your case indeed a memory of unlimited range a power of forecasting the future little short of divination, the sense of modesty to curb the appetites, love of justice, the faithful guardian of human society, contempt of pain and death, remaining firm and steadfast when toil is to be endured and danger undergone. These are our mental endowments. But I would also have you consider our bodily frame and our organs of sensation, which latter, like the other parts of the body, You, for your part, will esteem not as the comrades merely, but actually as the servants of the virtues. But if even the body has many attributes of higher value than pleasure, such as strength, health, beauty, speed of foot, what, pray, think you, of the mind? The wisest sages of antiquity believed that the mind contains an element of the celestial and divine, whereas if the chief good consisted in pleasure as your school avers the ideal of happiness would be to pass days and nights in the enjoyment of the keenest pleasure without a moment's intermission every sense drenched and stimulated with every sort of delight but who that is worthy to be called a human being would choose to pass a single entire day in pleasure of that description the cyrenaics it is true do not repudiate it on this point your friends are more decent but the cyrenaics perhaps more consistent but let us pass in review not these arts of first importance a lack of which with our ancestors gave a man the name of inert or good-for-nothing but i ask you whether you believe that i do not say homer archilochus or pindar but phidias Polycletus and zeuxis regarded the purpose of their art as pleasure then shall a craftsman have a higher ideal of external than a distinguished citizen of moral beauty but what else is the cause of an error so profound and so very widely diffused that the fact that he who decides that pleasure is the chief good judges the question not with the rational and deliberative part of his mind but with its lowest part the faculty of desire. For I ask you, if gods exist, as your school too believes, how can they be happy, seeing that they cannot enjoy bodily pleasures? Or, if they are happy without that kind of pleasure, why do you deny that the wise man is capable of a like purely mental activity? Chapter 35. Read the Panegyric's Torquatus, not of the heroes praised by Homer, not of Cyrus or Agesilaus, Aristides or Themistocles, Philip or Alexander, but read those delivered upon our own great men. Read those of your own family. You will not find any one extolled for his skill and cunning in procuring pleasures. This is not the purport of laudatory epitaphs, like that one near the city gate. Here lieth one whom all mankind agree rome's first and greatest citizen to be do we suppose that all mankind agreed that calatinus was rome's greatest citizen because of his surpassing eminence in the acquisition of pleasures then are we to say that a youth is a young man of great promise and high character when we judge him likely to study his own interests and to do whatever will be for his personal advantage do we not see what a universal upheaval and confusion would result from such a principle? It does away with generosity, and with gratitude, the bonds of mutual harmony. If you lend a man money for your own advantage, this cannot be considered an act of generosity. It is usury. No gratitude is owing to a man who lends money for gain. In fact, if pleasure usurps the sovereignty, all the cardinal virtues must inevitably be dethroned. And indeed, there are a number of morally base actions which can with difficulty be proved inconsistent with the character of the wise man, unless it be a law of nature that moral goodness should be supreme. Not to bring forward further arguments, for they are countless in number, any honest panegyric of virtue must needs keep pleasure at arm's length. Do not expect me further to argue the point. Look within, study your own consciousness, then after full and careful introspection ask yourself the question would you prefer to pass your whole life in that state of calm which you spoke of so often amidst the enjoyment of unceasing pleasures free from all pain and even an addition which your school is fond of postulating but which is really impossible free from all fear of pain or to be a benefactor of the entire human race and to bring succour and safety to the distressed even at the cost of enduring the agonies of a hercules agonies that was indeed the sad and gloomy name which our ancestors bestowed even in the case of a god upon labours which yet were not to be evaded i would press my question and drag an answer from you were i not afraid lest you should say that hercules himself in the toils and labours that he wrought for the preservation of mankind was acting for the sake of pleasure. Here I concluded, I am at no loss for authorities, said Torquatus, to whom to refer your arguments. I might be able to do some execution myself, but I prefer to find better equipped champions. No doubt you allude to our excellent and learned friends, Ciro and Philodemus. You are right, he replied, pray appeal to them said i but it would be fairer to let triarius pronounce some verdict on our dispute i formally object to him as prejudiced he rejoined with a smile at all events on this issue you have shown us some mercy but triarius lays about him like a true stoic oh interposed triarius i'll fight more boldly still next time for i shall have the arguments i have just heard ready to my hand though i won't attack you till i see you have been armed by the instructors whom you mentioned and with these words we brought our promenade and our discussion to an end together And of book two recording in memory of mitchell edwards